you've got a Bible, we are in Song of Songs, chapter 3. If you haven't got a Bible, if you've not got one with you and you want one, just pop your hand up and Julie will get you on the back. Song of Songs, chapter 3, or Song of Solomon, as it's written in your Bible there. And we've been working through, as a church, over the last few weeks, this collection of songs. It's called Song of Songs, or Song of Solomon, because it is a collection of, of lots of different songs, all brought together in this beautiful book that we have here in the Old Testament. And we've seen that this song has been teaching us a lot about marriage. And it's been giving us some wisdom that we can apply to marriages, or even if we're not married, wisdom that we can use as we seek to build other people up in their marriages or prepare for marriage ourselves. But we've seen as well, really, that the book fundamentally is pointing us to Jesus. And it does it in a poetic way in a really visual way, in a way that evokes the emotions. It's shown us poetically how Jesus relates to the church. And we've been talking about how we see this metaphor built through the Bible of how Jesus says that he is like a faithful husband to his church who are like his bride. And he engages with his church like a faithful husband would engage with his bride and we've we've got to see different aspects of his faithfulness as a husband over these last few weeks and what we see this afternoon is another aspect of how he relates to us the church and um, something that probably one of my favorite things to do and one of the most joy-giving things that I get to do and have done as a pastor is marrying people or seeing people get married. I've had the pleasure of doing that for a few people in this room, a few other people. And one of the favorite things that I get to do when I marry people is, is, to, is to get a bit of a unique perspective on, on the bride and the groom. So we've probably all been to a wedding or we've seen a wedding on the telly, so we know how they work. The, the bride comes in at the back of the church after the uh, bridesmaids and all the family have come in. And everyone turns, all their heads turn and face the back, don't they? Or at least they should. Like, we should know the drill. We all turn and we face to, and look at the bride. And everyone's looking that way. And I get a really unique perspective because I get to see the bride coming in, but also the groom. And I get to see his face as the bride comes through the door. And I get to see her face and everyone else's faces as they see her move further and further to stand next to the one that she loves. And the perspective that I get is you look at the groom and you see his, his whole body, his whole face just light up in some ways that I, I never see again in, in those men. Like there is just a, a complete joy and they are overwhelmed in love and affection and delight for their bride as, as they come in. And this afternoon, as we get into chapter three here, the song, it's going to teach us again something some uh, just practical aspects of wisdom, something that is particularly beautiful about human marriage, but even more than that, it's going to teach us how Jesus sees us. How he sees us as he is a faithful husband and he engages with the church as his bride, how he sees us, how he looks at us, how he views us. Let me start. I'm going to read in two parts. The first part I'm going to read is from chapter 3. Starting in verse 6. What is that coming up from the wilderness? Like columns of smoke. Perfumed with myrrh and frankincense. With all the fragrant powders of a merchant. Behold, 
It is the litter of Solomon. Around it are 60 mighty men. Some of the mighty men of Israel, all of them wearing swords and expert in war. Each with his sword at his thigh against terror by night. King Solomon made himself a carriage from the wood of Lebanon. He made its posts of silver, its back of gold, its seat of purple. Its interior was laid with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. Go out, O daughters of Zion, and look upon King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, on the day of the gladness of his heart. Let me just pray for us again before we go any further. Father, we thank you. Thank you for all the truth that we've confessed, but we thank you for this particular truth that you've given to us now. We thank you that these are your son's words given to us. And so we pray that he would speak to us. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would reveal truth to us as you promised to do, that you would lead us more and more to see who he is, to love him more. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. So far in the song, we've seen these these exchanges between the bride and the groom, these different songs that they sing to each other. And now as we get into chapter three, we get a bit of a change of scene. The bride and the groom are preparing for their wedding day. The narrative shifts a little bit and we get, we get, to, see, we get to see how it is that they see the, their special day, how it is that they view their wedding day. In verse six that we've just read there, we see that the husband is drawing his bride out from the wilderness. It's poetic. He's, he's wanting her to come to this, this special day. And she approaches him with, with fragrant perfume. Verse seven and eight. She's surrounded by soldiers who parade her to the wedding. And in verse nine, we see the man and he's pictured here as a king, a king like Solomon in his splendor enthroned and, and crowned approaching his wedding day. And we talked a little bit about this in, in chapter one. And if you want to listen back, it might be helpful. But I don't think we need to read this as Solomon himself. I think really the way this is written, it's to, it's to, to paint a poetic picture of, of what's going on on that day. It's to paint a poetic picture of, of how he should view the, the bride and the husband on this special day that they are approaching. I think we're still talking here about the, the shepherd boy. And the girl who works in the vineyards. These are poor people. But they're approaching their wedding day like they are royalty. It's a bit like Posh and Beck's type thing, right? Remember when they got married and they had those two big ornate thrones? It's a little bit like that. Like these, these guys have no money really. They're, they're poor, but yet they view their day, the their special day for what it is. A day of of significance. And folks, that teaches us something really important about weddings. Weddings are special. They are significant. And we should treat them as such. And we should treat marriage as special and significant. And we should do that because marriage is a gift from God. We didn't invent marriage, guys. We wouldn't have invented marriage if it was up to us. God invented it. It's his gift to humanity. And just like any gift that comes from someone who we love, someone who is as, as powerful and important as God, we should treasure that gift. Practically, folks, I think that means we honour marriages. Firstly, we honour marriage in our speech. So specifically for husbands and wives here this afternoon, honour your wife, honour your husband in the way that you speak. 
Husbands, we like, might joke about it and maybe think it's funny, but don't call your wife your ball and chain. Don't call them things like that, especially not around other people. Honor them. Speak highly of them. Like almost in an embarrassing way. I think that's what we see here. Wives, in the same way, speak highly of your husbands. Especially when you're in other people's presence and they're not there. Hold them in high esteem. Look for the, the ways in which they do reflect Christ and make much of those things. Honour marriage in our speech. Secondly, let's honour marriage in our prayers. This applies for all of us. Pray for the marriages in this church. Please, make that a priority in your prayers. If you're married or if you're not married, pray for the marriages in this church. The enemy is seeking to divide and destroy. And one of the primary places he goes to is marriage because of the picture of Christ that it gives us. And so soak the marriages of this church in prayer, please. And not just the marriages that are here now. Pray for our young ones. Pray for those kids who are running around upstairs and we can hear the little pitter-patter. Pray that God would lead them to marry a godly wife, a godly husband, when that day comes. Honour in your speech, honour in prayer, and honour honor in your attendance. And what I mean by that is, thinking particularly of the wedding day here, which is what is pictured for us here. If you are invited to attend a wedding, it'd be a good guest. Celebrate it. See that this is a good gift from God. And particularly if you're invited to participate in the wedding, whether you're doing a reading or a prayer, or you get to marry those people, or you're just there singing in the congregation, oh, do that in a prayerful way, folks. Honour that couple. Honour God as you gather together. Prayerfully participate and see. And by God's grace, all of the weddings that we've had in the life of our church have felt just like this. See that those, those marriages aren't just, a, aren't just a legal declaration. They are a moment of worship. They are a moment where we get to see a picture, a vivid picture of how Christ loves the church. And so worship as you engage in those moments. Honour marriage. We move forward now into chapter four. And as we get into chapter four here, we get to lift the song again to to see how it speaks into spiritual realities. Remember that the song is speaking to us about Christ's love towards the church. And here in chapter four, we really get to see how how this husband views his bride, but also how Christ views us, the church, his bride. So let me read chapter four, verses one to seven. And let me just give you a little, just a little warning before you read. (coughs) We're okay just to smile a little bit as we read this. This will sound peculiar. As we think of the husband singing these words over his wife, it will sound a little bit strange. That's okay. Let's just go with it. So this is him speaking, and this is where he says, Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. We're with him so far. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins, and not one of them has lost its young. Your lips are like a scarlet thread, and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of pomegranates behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built in rows of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, and all of them like shields of warriors. Your two breasts are like two fawn twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. 
until the day breathes and the shadows flee. I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Interesting love song, right? Like verse one and seven, there's a bit of a sandwich. He says the same things in verse one and seven. And that makes sense to us. Like we can imagine a husband saying to his wife, oh, you're beautiful. Behold, look at your beauty. But then the stuff in between is interesting, right? It's a little bit different. Your hair is like goats. Your teeth are like ewes. Your lips are like scarlet thread. That's not too bad, to be fair. Your cheeks are like pomegranates. Your neck is like a Tower of David. Your breasts are like twin gazelles. Like, it's interesting, right? That someone's done a bit of an artist impression, if you throw that up for us, Karis, of what the Song of Solomon woman would actually look like. If she looked like this description here, maybe that's a little bit what she would look like. Um, but actually... As strange, maybe we take it off carousel. We're just going to stare at her for the rest of the afternoon. There we go. Um, these descriptions sound strange and funky to us, but culturally they would have worked for it. Like we're not going to call our wives, I'll say our wives have got hair like a goat, but for hair it made sense. Goats from Gilead, there in verse one, they were, were goats that had a flowing kind of dark uh, curls of hair. And I think he's saying, like, I, I love your hair. I love kind of just its richness and its depth and, and the way it flows. Verse two there, he's saying that she's got a good set of teeth. And now it might not be our first photo call as we're, as we're dating with someone, but in a day where there was no dentists, like, that's pretty impressive. She's got a good set of teeth and all of them are still there. None of them have fallen out. <laughs> verse three there, her cheeks are like halves of pomegranates. You've got life in your cheeks. They're rosy. I don't know, like, I think this would have worked for me. And again, as we've seen before in the song, I think we can take here some wisdom that the Bible affirms and commends appreciating, verbally appreciating the one that you love. He says these things out loud so she can hear. And so I think that's helpful for us to take away, not even just in, in a marriage context, folks. The people that we love, the people that we hold dear, whether it's our children, our parents, our husband, our wife, our friends. Let them know that you love them. Tell them why you love them. And you might not go here, but you will be able to see things in their lives that you can give God thanks for and say, I love that about you. I just want you to hear that. I love the way that you look after our children. I love the way that you move towards people when they're on their own. Just look for those things and give thanks to God for them and affirm those people. But what does this teach us about Christ and the church? Well, as we read this in the spiritual sense that it is meant to be read, as the husband being a picture of Christ and us being a picture of the bride here, it teaches us that Christ holds his church in the highest esteem. It teaches us that Christ thinks his church and you, if you are part of it, he thinks that you are amazing. We get to hear, look down at verse 7. We get to hear verse 7 spoken over us by Christ. You are altogether beautiful. And remember, we're talking about spiritual truths here. Spiritually, you are altogether beautiful. And listen to this. There is no flaw in you. Spiritually, 
Christ looks on us and says, there is no flaw in you. And it isn't that he ignores our faults. He can't. He sees it all. Like he's God. He sees it all. He sees our sin and he hates it. And yet he wants all of his people to know. And maybe specifically some of us in this room this afternoon, maybe some of us specifically to know and to hear that declaration over us today. That he sees us as beautiful and he sees no flaw in us spiritually. And just let that settle in for a second. Knowing our offences, knowing our sin, knowing how much we should be covered in moral, spiritual darkness. Let it settle that Christ sees you and takes great delight in you. How can that be? How can he say that we are without flaw when he knows that we still sin? Like, is this just poetry? Are we just to read this as, okay, it's just go with the flow. It's not actually, it's not really true. No. God's word explains to us why we can take that truth as true to us this afternoon. Our spiritual purity the Bible tells us, is rooted in our spiritual justification. Christ being able to say to us, you are altogether lovely, I see no spiritual flaw in you, that truth is rooted in our spiritual justification or our being made right before God. That's what justification means. See, when we are saved, folks, all of Christ's righteousness, it is imputed or or copied over into our accounts. It's copied over to us so that we are no longer covered in, in our sin nature, but we are now covered in all that makes Christ, Christ Jesus, glorious and lovely. So even though God sees our sin, and listen to this carefully, He sees no sin in His people that He needs to punish us for. Do you hear that? Even though God sees our sin, he sees no sin in his people that he needs to condemn us for. He's not blind, folks. He sees it all. But he sees nothing that he is going to judge us for. Because all of those sins, all of those sins were placed onto Jesus who has already been judged for them and in our place. The blood of Jesus removes every stain of sin and his righteousness clothes his people in perfect beauty. So every believer is just as loved and just as accepted and just as delighted in by the Father as the Lord Jesus Christ is right now in heaven. We are made spiritually beautiful in Christ. And hear this, the Father cannot be more delighted in you. He cannot be more pleased with you. He cannot love you more. This is why the song is so important, folks. It gives us a right and appropriate theology for for spiritual beauty. See, in our theological tradition as a church, in the Reformed tradition, we hear a lot about, about humanity being totally depraved. And we talk a lot about our our unworthiness before Christ. And we talk about the lowly position that we have before a holy God. 
you know, we identify with, you know, and David in Psalm 22 says, I am but a worm. Like, like we almost are encouraged to take that position. And I get that. And all of those things are true. But in Christ, all of those things change. That actually a right reading of Psalm 22, when David says, I am but a worm, I am, I am nothing before God. A right reading of Psalm 22 is to see that that is, that is how Jesus placed himself. That Jesus became the one who was like a worm. He became the one who was unworthy before God. He became the one who took the most lowly position out of all humanity. Because he took those things on in our place. So now God finds beauty in his church instead. And he desires to commune with his people. Because of what Christ has done for us, God finds beauty when he looks on his people and he designs to commune intimately with his people. Let me read the rest of our passage, chapter 4, verses 8 to 11, where we see those two things there. God finding beauty in his people and communing with his people. In verse 8, He carries on with a song and this is what he says to his bride, come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Depart from the peak of Amarna, from the peak of Senir and Hermon, from the dens of lions, from the mountains of leopards. You have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You've captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than any spice? Your lips drip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. See, the peaks of Amana and Senir and Hermon here that we read in verse 8, they were mountains that inspired awe. You would stand at the foot of them and you would look up and they, they were grand peaks. They inspired all, but they were distant from, from where people lived. They were distant from, from the place that the, the husband lived here. And so he, he beckons her. And she wasn't literally up there. He's looking forward again to this, this marriage day and he wants, he wants his bride to join him. And so he allures her, he beckons her, he draws her out from this place of distance. And in verse nine, he is captivated by her. It is that moment, you know, the the groom seeing the bride approach, he is captivated by what he sees. And so let's just slow down and apply that to our relationship with Jesus. Let's lift up the song here so we can see how Jesus wants us to understand our relationship with him. And firstly, we see that that he wants to draw us out. That's what we see in verse 8. Jesus wants to draw his people out and into his presence. C.H. Spurgeon calls verse 8 there a divine summons. As we read Christ into the song here, Christ is beckoning his church from the wilderness. From a place that's described here as a a place of, of dens of lions and leopards. It's a place of danger. It's a place of isolation. And Jesus is drawing his church out of that place into his presence. You know, we see something of this picture unwrapped in an even more vivid detail in Hosea's story. The prophet Hosea was one of God's men and, and God uses Hosea and his life to teach 
his people how he loves them. He uses Hosea's marriage to teach them. If you read the book of Hosea, you'll see that, that God tells Hosea to go marry a woman called Goma. And Goma is a prostitute. She's lived an unfaithful life. And Goma in Hosea's story is a picture of how God's people treat him. We reject him. We're unfaithful to him. We don't follow him. We walk in sin instead of righteousness. Gomer is a picture of, of how God's people treat, treat him and cheating on him and taking advantage of his kindness and love. But, but God says to Hosea, I want you to marry this woman. And I want you to, to have children with this woman. And so Hosea goes and finds Gomer. They, they marry together and they, they have two children. And God says, I want you to give, give the first child this name, not my people. And I want you to give the second child this name, No Mercy. And the names of these children were a prophetic picture of how God should treat his people. How God should treat us as we are unfaithful to him, as we reject him, as we walk in our sin. God should have no mercy on us. He should treat us as not his people. And so God, uh, Hosea marries Gomer, they have these children, they name them. And then in chapter two, things get worse. Hosea is a faithful husband, but unprovoked, his wife Gomer commits adultery on him. She prostitutes herself again, and she's unfaithful to him. And at that point, we expect God to tell Hosea, right, leave her. Walk away from her. Have no mercy on her. Treat her as not your people. Except that isn't what happens. Instead, God says, Hosea, take her back. And I want you to rename those children. You ought to, to call not my people, my people. And you ought to call no mercy, I will have mercy. <coughs> because that is exactly how I love my people. He says this in Hosea chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. It's up on the screen there. This is God talking of his people. He says, behold, I will allure her. I will bring her into the wilderness. I will speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of trouble a door of hope. God says that he will allure his people. He will draw his people to himself. People who are in spiritual Wilderness, people who are in, a, are in a place away from the life-giving presence of God because of our sin. He will draw those people to himself. He will not punish them. He will not chastise them. He will not cut them off. He will speak tenderly to them and he will have mercy and he will call us his people. And the question from God's word as we read that story in Hosea and as we are presented here in the song with this picture of the husband drawing his bride towards him, the question this afternoon is, will you come? Will you come to him? If you're not a Christian, this is a call, a direct call to you this afternoon. You might think that the trajectory of your life is one of rest and peace and comfort. It isn't. You are heading further and further into the wilderness. 
Your sin is continuing to draw you further and further in. And the song here likens your life to a wilderness, a wilderness, a place where there are wild beasts, a place that there is no safety. And that is true. There is no safety in a life without faith in Christ. Jesus is calling you out, so will you come? You need to know that the road out of the wilderness, out of spiritual death, is a road of faith. It's faith in the saving work of Jesus on your behalf. It's safe in his, it's faith in, in his death on a cross, being all sufficient to forgive your sins. It's faith that his resurrection has made a way for you to have eternal life with him. Jesus is calling. Answer him. Follow him. He draws us out, and then in verse 9 and 10, we see, we see that he is captivated by our love. Look at verse 9. You have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. When, when the husband here is talking about his bride as his sister, he's not talking literally. He's talking about the deep friendship and trust that they have. And actually, this is helpful wisdom. It reinforces that their, their marriage relationship isn't just physical. Like it's, it's a friendship as well. There's deep trust there. Then look at the end of verse nine. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes. See, the husband loves it when she looks at him, just even with a glance. He loves it. His heart is thrilled when, when there's just that little look towards him. And in verse 10 and 11 here, how beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine, the fragrance of your oils than spice. Your lips drip with nectar, my bride. All of that there, if you've been tracking along here since chapter one, all of that is just him regurgitating and retelling what she has already said to him. He's just saying word for word the very things that she has declared over him from chapter one and chapter two. He's repeating her adoration of him. He's saying the things that you find lovely in me, I see those same things in you and I delight in them. As we apply this to our relationship with Jesus, here's what we learn. This is so simple, but we need to hear it. Jesus loves us. I'm sorry if you feel shortchanged coming out this afternoon to hear that, but we need to hear it. Jesus loves us more than we know. And look, even in those tiny moments of affection that we show him, even in that just slight glance of love that we show him, it thrills his heart. Spurgeon says this as he's writing about these verses here. It'll come up on the screen here. I'll read it out to us. He suggests that we pause. He says, pause here. Pause here, my soul, to contemplate a moment and let your joy wait a while. Jesus Christ has banquets in heaven such as we have never yet tasted. And yet he does not feed there. He has wines in heaven richer far than all the grapes of Eshol could produce. But where does he seek his wines? In our hearts, my friends, in our hearts. Not all the love of angels, nor all the joys of paradise are so dear to him as the love of his poor people sprinkled with sin and compassed with infirmity. Is that not a thought? I may preach about it, but I can only speak it to you. Read it 
Mark it, learn it, and inwardly digest it. And oh, if you saw him standing here tonight, looking into your eyes and saying to you personally, you love me. I know that you love me. Your love is to me better far than wine. (coughs) Would you not fall at his feet and say, Lord, is my love so sweet to you? Then shame upon me that I should give you so little of it. See, Spurgeon is saying there, Jesus has everything at his fingertips. All things are his. And he could fill fill his his countenance with, with the most delightful of things, but the thing that really thrills his heart is when we show our love to him. It's when we turn our face to him and, and show our affections for him. The right response to the love of Jesus Christ is to love Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, Christ loves your love of him. So let's give it to him. And be encouraged. He isn't looking for the extravagant displays. We all know those husbands, right? Who just buy flowers all the time and the chocolates. He's not even looking for that. Even the smallest glance, even the smallest moment of affection thrills his heart. It is like the best of wine, the sweetest of fragrances, the sweetest of honey. And so maybe think of it like this. When we come here on a Sunday afternoon and we're running late, for whatever reason, and we try and creep in the back through the door, and we're thinking, oh, I've come in halfway through. There's, there's no point in me being here. It's pointless being here. I'm only able to sing a couple of songs at the end or take communion. He loves that you're here. He loves that you're, you're here. It thrills his heart. But what about when we're gathered in our gospel communities and, and everyone seems to have really deep theological reflections? And you're like, I, I don't know what to say. Like, and you just put forward just a simple truth. Oh, that is like sweet honey on his lips. It thrills his heart. Or what about when we come here and we're tired and we're heavy hearted? And we drag ourselves here on a Sunday afternoon. And we sit and we listen. And we stand and we sing. With a weak voice. And a heavy heart. Those words that we sing are like fragrant perfume to him. It thrills his heart. But what about at our prayer meeting? And everyone has those long eloquent prayers. And all we know is that he loves us. And I just want to tell him that I love him. And you offer forward that, that, short, that short prayer of love. It's like sweet honey to him. It thrills his heart. It is simple. But it's true. Jesus loves you. And he loves your love of him more than we could know and part of us folks should refuse to believe that Jesus would love us like he does 
that he would love our feeble efforts of love towards him, that he would love even just those short glances, but he does. That's grace. And the right response to grace is love. So friends, if he is so thrilled with our little acts of love towards him, then the encouragement I think is this. Let's love him more. Let's increase this week those little moments of praise. Let's seek this week to be in his presence all the more. We get to do that now. We're going to sing. We're going to take this meal together. We're going to have one of those moments where we can turn our face towards him and where we can tell him that we love him. Let me pray. And the guys are going to come up and lead us through the Lord's Supper together. We'll sing together. Let me pray. Father, we confess that we, we deserve nothing from you. But we thank you that in Jesus you have given us everything. And so we thank you, Father. Help us, help us this week to see his love towards us. Help us to see that if we are your people, that he has drawn us out, drawn us out from the spiritual wilderness. He has given us a new identity. He has cleansed us from all of our sin because he bore our sin for us. And help us as we see the love that he has displayed towards us, help us to love him all the more. Jesus, you are worthy of all of our affection. Help us to see that this week. Help us to grow in that. We pray in your name. Amen.